Hello and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. And I want to warn you, as you listen to this conversation, you're about to hear me, uh, let's just say, catch my breath a few times. I don't think there's any amount of post-production magic that can edit out the fact that I was actively working hard to process and unpack the deep wisdom that came with every response in this conversation and then realizing that I had to ask the next question. At the end of it, when we were all finished, I actually said, did you get that on tape? Which, yes, I realize is the whole point of a podcast. But if you've been struggling with anything from stress to anxiety to simply the weight of the world right now, the next 45 or so minutes will feel like medicine or at least it did for me. And knowing who the guest is, it won't come as a surprise. So let's get to it. Today's success story is Deepak Chopra. For the past 30 years, Deepak Chopra has been at the forefront of the meditation revolution in the West. His 91st book, Total Meditation, was released just last week. It offers a complete exploration and reinterpretation of the physical, mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual benefits that this practice can bring. Time Magazine named him in their top 100 heroes and icons of the last century. He's best friends with the Dalai Lama, is the most influential person in Lady Gaga's life, officiated Alicia Keys' wedding, in addition to the 16 million people like you and me who follow his deeply spiritual teachings across social media. Deepak Chopra, welcome to success. I can't wait to hear your stories. Deepak, where are you joining us from today? Let me start there. I'm non-local, which means I exist outside of space and time. But today, I happen to be localized in La Jolla, California. Oh, that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be localized. Um, I have to tell you, as we get started here, I was talking to my husband. His name is Michael, telling him that I had this interview today, and he said to me, "Do you know that the first book?" my father ever gave me was one of Deepak's books. It was um, the seven spiritual laws of success. And it was, uh, you know, I think back to the first book my dad ever gave me, I'm sorry to say Deepak, it was um, Ogmandino's. One of, one of I know. <laughs> but, but he had, I could see it in my um, husband's eyes, like, what a, what a beautiful moment between a father and a son. And I just wanted to let you know that I know that is one of millions of beautiful moments that you've created for people. Thank you. So let's, let, let's talk. Speaking of millions, I, I know I gave your introduction, but I have a few, a few more notes here. So the author of 91 books, does this make 92 or are we, are we at 91 now? This is 91. This is 91. Okay, good. I'm, I'm excited for 92 already, you can tell. Um, including dozens of New York Times bestsellers. Uh, Time Magazine named you, in your, named you in the top 100 heroes and icons of the last century. You're best friends with the Dalai Lama. And this is perhaps most important to me. You are the most influential person in Lady Gaga's life. Yeah, I know. That's, I can't. So, so to that end, let me ask you, uh, Mr. Chopra, were you born this way? Do you see what I did there with uh, Lady Gaga's famous song? Like, like this is, so we see you now, I see you now, your many admirers and followers and, and people whose lives you have changed see you for who you are now, but is that how it started? Like, I want to go all the way back. Like, was it obvious that this was going to be your path? This is who you were going to be? 
But since you asked about stories, let me answer with the story. So when I was a very small kid, maybe about, my memory goes back to almost when I was five, but my mother used to repeat this over and over again. She would tell me uh, as a little boy that um, there are two divine goddesses, two divine aspects, actually there are many, but she would only mention two, two divine aspects of the feminine. One is the goddess of wisdom, the other is the goddess of abundance, mm -hmm. in short, money. <laughs> and she said... Abundance sounds, yeah, it's such an eloquent word for money. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah, abundance in all its forms. So, One's called Saraswati, she's the wise, she imparts wisdom. And the other is called Lakshmi, she imparts abundance. So my mother said to me, why don't you ignore the goddess of abundance and just pay attention to the goddess of wisdom and then she, the other one will get jealous and she'll chase you. And so that's what I did. I, I paid attention to the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of abundance, well, never left me period i okay so so tell me what what are some of the ways then five years old and i love that you can go back to when you were five i have a, a collection of memories from when i was five i feel like that's kind of when they start to that's when they begin what were some of the ways that you what were some of those moments those interactions that you had with the goddess of wisdom so again, going back to my mother, she would every night tell me a story about one of the goddesses. And when the story would stop in a moment of crisis every night, you know, what in today's entertainment language we call a cliffhanger. So she would stop at the cliffhanger where everybody was in trouble. The goddess herself was in crisis. And then she would say, now, why don't you dream up the ending and make sure it's a happy ending and it's a love story. So I used to go to bed thinking of what is the ending? And then I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have a story and I would share it with her. And she said, that's it. That's the key to success. Doesn't matter what is happening. The ending can be a success if the story is a love story. So, all right, this is, a, this is a technical question. As a lover of stories myself and as a mother myself, uh, did she make these stories up or are they part of, they were true, like they were part of the lore? They're part of a mythical tradition and lore and she used to sing them. She didn't just uh, speak them. She used to sing them in a melody. So, you know, I can still hear her singing in my head. Okay, so she would, and so you would make up the happy endings to these stories. Now, as you grow, you're no longer, you're no longer a, um, a little boy. You're a teenager, maybe you're a young man, uh, 18, 20, in those, in those formative years. What, did you ever have the temptation to go, like, to chase the goddess of abundance right? Instead of just letting her find you. Like, what did these, as you grew older, what did these, what was your relationship with these stories between these two? I think the story was always the goddess of wisdom. And uh, that's what I wanted to know. What is the meaning of life? What happens to us after we die? Is there a divine intelligence? Why do people suffer? And then when I was about, uh, about uh, 14, my father was a cardiologist. He was a doctor and he wanted very much me to be a doctor. Um, he didn't like parents, you know, they want you to be in what they think you should be in. <laughs> I did not want to be a doctor. I wanted to be a writer, which I am right now, 91 books. 91. But I wanted to be a fiction writer. And that troubled him even more, you know, that I want to be a doctor, I don't, I'm not interested in nonfiction, I'm, you know, only in stories. So on my 14th birthday, he gave me 
three or four books. Two are by somebody called Somerset Mom. Uh, I remember the names, uh, The Razor's Edge. And uh, then another book was about a surgeon who used to anonymously um, help people. And so when I read those books, I said, oh, you know, your doctors can be good humans too. So I went back to him and I said, uh, you know, I think I'll go to medical school. And then what he said is, um, but you don't have biology. You just only have literature. All you know is Shakespeare. <laughs> you need to know biology. So he had, uh, I had a private tutor for a year and I did pre-med and I went to medical school and I did both. I became a doctor and a writer. And, and think about where, like, think about where this conversation right here today started was with the books that a father gives a son. That's it. Can you, be, can you believe, yes. can you believe that, that this is? Synchronicity, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to, um, so this obviously started, and, and here, so here's a question that, that comes up for, as, as the listeners of success, I know that there are people who like to take action and are looking for those, right, success leaves clues. They're, they're looking for those clues of ways that they can better themselves um, or maybe even better their children. And maybe this is a, a selfish, this is a selfish, selfish question for myself as I'm, as I'm raising two of my own children. What, like, what would you say to parents right now, and especially, which, which this will come up throughout our conversation in the time that we're at right now, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, so much uncertainty is when we're recording this, I'm sure, we, I'm sure it'll still be going on uh, once we release the podcast. It sounds like your parents really shaped you. Um, what would you say to, to parents right now who who want to pass tools on to, to their children for their future success. So, you know, as I was growing up, I also saw a lot of anguish in the world. You know, the Vietnam War was still on when I was in medical school you know, or even in pre-med. Um, there were a lot of racial tensions in America, but also in the world, even though at that time I was living in India, but we, in the newspapers were talking about Gloria Steinem. Uh, there was the anti-war movement. There was the feminist movement. There was uh, Greenpeace. The ecology movement had just started. So as I was looking at this, I was also seeing all the anguish. You know, there was across the world, there was also what we see today conflict, war. And my parents would tell me, my father would tell me, listen, you're not unique. Your generation is not unique. In my generation, we saw the atomic bomb. We saw Nazi Germany. We saw Holocaust. In your grandfather's generation, there was the Great Depression, 1918. There was also a worldwide pandemic and millions of people died. In my grandfather's generation, uh, his grandfather's generation, there was the Indian mutiny and civil war. There was a civil war here. And then my dad said, listen, this has been going on since the Middle Ages, uh, since the Bronze Age. So if you want to be creative and successful, you have to be independent of all this. You have to be centered and you have to be creative, you have to be visionary, you have to be the change you want to see in the world, irrespective of what's going on in the world. The good and the bad, it'll always be there. It has always been there. But you have to be independent of both. And you have to be creative. And that's how you'll be successful. And then he would define success for me. You know, it's not like everybody today says they want to be successful. They say American dream, but you ask them, what does it mean? And, you know, sometimes they'll say it means two automobiles or a big house and three garages or making a lot of money. But that's not how my father defined success or my mother for that matter. Um, they always define success as the progressive realization of worthy goals. And we said, what are worthy goals? Goals that improve 
the condition of humanity and alleviate suffering, which of course, as a physician was my idea of what it means to be a successful doctor, alleviate suffering. So that was the first progressive realization of worthy goals, not necessarily in order of preference, but the second point, the way they define success was um, the ability to love and have compassion because without the ability to love and have compassion, you will not have worthy goals. And then the third component of success that they spoke about was always to be centered so you could be creative, not be at the mercy of every critic or every flatterer. They said, if you're at the mercy of every critic, you'll be offended for the rest of your life. And if you're at the mercy of every flatterer, you'd be pleased till somebody offends you again. So don't worry about what people think. Sing your song and don't worry who listens or what they think. I I knew that today uh, this conversation would be the, the, the medicine that I personally needed. And I know everyone listening right now, but because, because we, you know, there is this, um, I, I can feel within myself right now, this, this, uh, this tension of, of feeling like I, I want to be centered in myself. Like I, that, that is the, that is the true, everything that you said right there, but being pulled, like feeling pulled by all of the, um, the good and the bad around. And, and it sounds almost, um, contradictory to, you know, what we're supposed to be, what we think we're supposed to be telling our children or the grander story of we're so unique, there's no one like you, like this is so, you know, your experience is unique, which of course it is, but you're right. Like as you listed all of the generational, you know, the the good and the bad and the, these are these are stories that that have been going from forever. You all you have to read is any religious text, read the Bible. All everything that's happening today happened in the Bible. You know, everything from, you know, betrayal to uh, all kinds of ridiculous, abysmally, what you would and I would call terrible things and also all kinds of amazing, exalted things. This is the human condition. Uh, To be human is to be conflicted full of contradictions, full of paradox, and to be vulnerable. But we don't admit that. We want to be very sure about what we're saying. So we take sides. But actually, if you look at humanity, you see human beings are a very interesting species. We are divine, but we have also diabolical tendencies. We are good, but we have, you know, the sinner, so-called sinner in us. But we also have the so-called saint in us. And we have choices in every moment. Animals don't. They, they just have instinct, and they do the right thing, by the way. Animals always do the right thing without thinking about it. They are hungry, they eat. Okay, they, are, they, they, uh, they mate sexually and they don't obsess about sexual addiction, but humans do, okay? Animals feed till they're full and then don't feed again, okay? You you go to the safari in Africa, you'll see that the gazelles and the lions are sitting together till the lion is hungry, then the gazelle is nowhere to be found. And after that gazelle, the lion has had his meal, the gazelle is back and they're sitting together again. So, you know, animals, nature has built in safety, but humans, are different. We, we are storytellers, okay? And our whole reality is shaped by stories. So first we had gossip is the biggest story in the world. But then after that is mythology. After that is religion, which is cultural mythology. After that is theology, doctrine, philosophy, and science. These are all stories that humans have improved the storytelling, thinking they're creating a better world, but actually even though we have created a better world, we have Zoom, we have airplanes, we have the internet, but we also have atomic weapons. We have biological warfare. We have climate change. We have eco-destruction. We have extinction of species. We have poison in our food chain. So is today's story better? I would say it's the same story, but we have modern capacities which can destroy the world. So we now need a new story. So what do you, So and, and actually since we're, 
this is a question that goes back to earlier when you were talking about your mother. Why do you think she would say, and I know you know the answer, but that when you made up the ending to the story, when you came up for the ending of the story for the goddess of wisdom, why it always needed to be a happy ending, why it always needed needed to be a, a love story. What and now based in and in, in connection with this conversation, this piece of the conversation, like why do you think that was? You know, in hindsight, what she was talking about is both uniqueness and what I would say today, uh, what I would call complementarity. Uniqueness, you're unique, but you're part of a whole. And today, actually, there's a new science. It's called emergence. Emergence says it doesn't matter what the problem is. Pick any problem, okay? But if you have a group of people with multiple, multiple diverse backgrounds. Diverse backgrounds means racial, multiple diversity in race, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, but also gender Mm -hmm. and, but also background. So if you have a people, scientists, cosmologists, geneticists, storytellers, entertainers, songwriters, education people, cosmologists, geneticists, put them all together identify their unique strengths, have a shared vision, and be totally transparent in feedback, and open and bond with each other emotionally and spiritually, and you'll have a solution, no matter what the problem is. And then the story that she told was actually relevant to that, you know, there's an army of demons and there's an army of goddesses and the demons have all the weapons, but they don't have any creativity. The goddesses all, they don't have weapons, but they're very creative. So they always trick the demons out. And the goddesses always believe in love as the ultimate truth. So every story is a love story. It doesn't have to be love between two lovers as in Romeo and Juliet, it could be, but it could be love for an idea, love for humanity, love for nature, love for the divine, love for the universe. But as long as that element is there, then the story will take its own course and fulfill its destiny. I mean, I, you know, I think about, I, I, I think back to that, the, what is the song where it's like, all you need is love and it, and it's easy to be like, no, no, you need a, you need a lot of other things. Fine. But like at that core, like, and, and that's what you're saying, like love for whatever, whatever it may be. So now let me ask you this. You mentioned that. Let me actually comment on that. Please. Because all you need is love. Of course, is the Beatles who might, ended up becoming good friends with afterwards. But uh, but uh, here's what the elements of a good story are, okay? After saying all you need is love, no, you need much more. So a good story has a past right now. For example, we are seeing in America something called Black Lives Matter as a story, right? And we are seeing racial injustice, we're seeing conflict. So what's the backstory? The backstory is the history of slavery and colonialism. What's the result of that story, what we're seeing today? What do we want to see in the future is social and economic justice and everything else we said. So now we know the themes. There's a backstory, there's a present story, there's a future story. Mm-hmm. What does the story involve? It involves characters. Now, in a good story, not every character can be a hero, right? Um, not every character can be a good person. If you see a movie which has only good persons, it's a boring movie, right? So you have to have all kinds of characters in the movie. Good, bad, indifferent, allies, enemies, adversaries. That's part of a good story. The second is there's a context to the story. So the context is the present situation. Okay. Then the third thing is how do the characters relate to each other? The fourth thing is, is there a crisis? Because without a crisis, you know, when the girl says to the boy, go to hell, you're done. (laughs) That's a crisis. (laughs) Has to do something, right? Okay, so there has to be a crisis. 
And then there has to be even possibly the death of an old context, old meaning. Because without the death of an old story, there's no new story or a resurrection. So every story involves death and resurrection. It involves falling down and getting up. Therefore, challenges. Without challenges, no story. And then the quest, I go into the mountain. When I reach that, that's my love story. I got there and I see this glorious dreamscape, but it's real now because it was dream before, now it's real. Then I come back to tell my friends what I saw. Then I gather together my allies and my allies, some of them are my adversaries, my perceived enemies, because without their help, I will not be able to actualize the story. If I kill my adversaries, story is finished. Okay, but if I, if I recruit them and they become my allies, we have a better story now. Okay, so on and on, context, meaning, relationship, story, death, resurrection, challenges, getting up, climbing to the mountain, having a dream, sharing the dream, complimenting other people's dreams, and you have a successful story. I, and you know, this is, um, yes, I, I'm thinking about all the, and these stories can happen on like on a micro level and then on a grander level, right? They can happen, they can happen in a, in a day. Like we, you know, just in, 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 a, in a two hour span or they can happen over the course of humanity. Now this, was going to wait to talk about the book, but but I um, I wanted to make sure that I talked to you about this because the other, it's uh, I believe it's chapter um, five. It, it's the combo of chapters four and five, right? So um, the stuckness is chapter four, and then getting unstuck is chapter five. And in chapter five, you're talking about you're talking about this concept of storytelling in some ways, but it's more the story you tell yourself and. Um, the other component that you mention in there is um, the power of the emotion and and what you what you feel in these in these moments and these stories from your own now you know we'll take it out of the grand scheme of humanity and put it into your own experience and that we carry uh, stories with us from our from our childhood and they and they can in some way or childhood or you know reason past or whatever it is they based on the the power of that emotion they can keep us in a place that maybe we don't want to be would you mind i just found this i found that particular i found the whole book fascinating and so useful we'll get to that but can you talk a little bit about that that piece right there in the stories we tell ourselves yeah so one thing to know is even though in the age of science and rationality, we believe in logic, no one is convinced with logic. Right now, talk about climate change, talk about anything in the political atmosphere, yeah. nobody's going to change their mind because of logic. Nobody is going to change their mind because of logic in either side. They'll change their mind if they hear a story that hits a chord with their heart which means there's emotion to the story. When you combine facts with emotions and a story, you win. They ask any lawyer, okay? Ask any lawyer which side wins. And they'll tell you the side with the better story. And the jury will listen to the facts, but they also want to know the story and they want to know the emotion behind the story, always. So if I asked you, do you remember what you were doing at 5.47 p.m. last Tuesday? What were you thinking last Tuesday at 5.47? <laughs> we're trying to remember what last Tuesday. So you can't. I can't, yeah, no. I'd have to like look at my phone and write. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the things, you can, if I asked you, do you remember how you learned the English language or your ABCD or one, two, three, four? Do you remember how you learned to walk? Do you remember how you learned to toilet trade? <laughs> okay, we don't remember anything that everybody else does. We only remember things that had a strong emotional impact on us. I remember, for example, 9-11. Who wouldn't? I remember, because I'm much older than you, 
the day John Kennedy was shot or Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. I remember when Sonny Liston beat the heck out of Cassius, no, Cassius Clay beat the head out of, heck out of Sonny Liston became Muhammad Ali after that. So these are important moments in your life because they are full of emotion. So here's a, anybody wants to be successful, you find your song, you tell it with emotion, make sure that it has a lot of emotional impact, but don't exaggerate, be authentic, don't say something that isn't true, have integrity and have a higher calling and you'll be successful. Doesn't matter what your profession is. Yeah, and what if, so here's my, here's my question. What if the inner, what if the jury is actually inside you? Like if, if, if that's, you know, you, you, you have the, you know, we're talking about the, um, the, the, whoever, whatever attorney, whatever side tells the better story. But as we're talking about what's happening inside of us, how do we, how do we, and I think this, go, like this, um, th I, that's what I love about this book is like tapping into that, that jury that's within us and the emotions that we hang on to from previous experiences that, that maybe aren't serving us. Yeah, so in the book, what I've tried to explain is that uh, every solution to every problem and ultimately the secret to success is not a solution out there, never a solution out there. Mm -hmm. The solution is always within you. Human beings have many ways to react to situations. So the most frequent way that people react, like right now, is called fight or flight. They either fight the situation or they run or they freeze. Okay. <laughs> so that's the number one, fight, flight, freeze response. That's the most common way people react and causes stress, inflammation, all kinds of things. You don't have any clarity of thinking, nothing. The second most common way that human beings react is what we call the reactive response. We learn it in childhood. The reactive response has four different aspects to it. You're nice, but manipulative. You're nasty, but manipulative you're stubborn and withdrawn and manipulative, or you play the victim and you're being manipulative. That's the reactive response. So let me give you an example. You're a child, you're four years old or three years old or whatever, and you're out with your mom in shopping mall, and you want a lollipop. And mom says, no, you got it one yesterday, and so I'll get you one tomorrow. So what is we you do? The first reaction is, mommy, I love you. I'll give you a kiss. Will you please buy me a lollipop? She says, no. So what's the second thing do you throw a tantrum? You start screaming. So from being nice and manipulative, you immediately become nasty and manipulative. <laughs> and then what happens? She still doesn't buy you the lollipop. You go home and she can't find you. You're hiding in the closet and you're pouting, you're withdrawn. And she says, uh, what happened? And you said, leave me alone. You pout, you withdraw. So now you're third manipulation, stubborn, manipulative. Even that doesn't work. Then you go to your mom and you say, you know, you're so nice to my brothers and sisters, but you're not nice to me. You play the victim. <laughs> By now she's fed up. So she buys you the lollipop. <laughs> now your mind says it works. I can, I can be nice, nasty, stubborn, and manipulative. So that's what you become. That's with the reactive response. And most people don't go beyond that. Now, what I'm saying in this book is you have built-in mechanisms to go beyond that. The third response is being centered. The fourth response is being intuitive. The fifth response is being creative. The sixth response is having a vision and a dream which is way beyond what you thought was possible. And then the final response is transcendence. You are so happy that you are in that place where you feel that you can manifest anything. 
Now, this, these are built into our biology. In total meditation, what I did do is, I mentioned these techniques, concentration, reflection, inquiry, uh, controlled breathing, yoga, meditation, mindful awareness, transcendence, awareness of body, awareness of mind, awareness of relationship, awareness of ecosystem, awareness of the universe. You combine all that, everything is there in you. Nothing, no solutions are out there. So the journey is from here to here. You don't go anywhere. <laughs> right. Oh, so, so, so let, me, um, let me ask you this. Do you remember, and you mentioned it actually in, in the book, do you remember when you first, you know, so I'm thinking about all the people that have maybe tried meditation or haven't tried it because they haven't wanted to. Um, do you remember the first time you decided to meditate or, or, or not even that first time, but back to our story model, like what was happening right before that? Like, do, do you remember your first experience with this? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, although I grew up with this, all this stuff, when I graduated from medical school and I came to the U.S., I worked in an emergency room. My internship was in New Jersey. Then I went to Boston. I was at the VA. I was at Tufts Medical School, Harvard, BU, residency. And in the 80s and even in the late 70s, when we were working as residents and interns, this is what I remember. I remember taking care of patients, doing resuscitation, putting intubating patients, putting pacemakers, putting them in the ICU, and then going outside the hospital and smoking a cigarette. I remember that on every Friday, Everybody who was not on duty at the hospital got drunk. The other people had to, all the residents got drunk and uh, the others were on duty. I remember that on grand rounds afterwards, my professor was the uh, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, wearing a white coat and a stethoscope and smoking a cigarette, and giving a lecture on esophageal cancer, which he died from. He died yeah. from, yeah. This is one of the most famous clinicians in the country at that time. So this was the environment that I ended up with my background from my mother and my father, and I was totally immersed in it. Now, I was part of that. So now I'm teaching, I'm taking care of patients, I have 20 patients in the ICU, 20 in the outpatient, 20 inpatient, I have to talk to all the relatives, and in between I have to go out and get a cigarette. So that's not a good life, right? And at that moment, I said, how can I help my patients if I can't help myself? You know, I had my first, what in retrospect, I had physician burnout, which is very common, by the way, amongst doctors. So then is when I learned, went back to meditation. And I immediately, immediately changed my lifestyle. I don't know if it was because of meditation, but because I chose at that moment, I'm stopping smoking, I'm stopping alcohol, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to meditate, and I'm really going to help my patients. I don't need 60 patients in the hospital. I can do with 10 patients, but I need to really care for these patients and change my life. So, and and I would imagine that that was a big, that lifestyle is one thing, and then changing your, and, and this is, it seems like a theme throughout your life. As I was just reading your bio and all the, all the places you've been and the things that you've started and, and, and all the, the, I mean, I'm like, he must be 300 years old uh, to get all of that in. You don't look a day over 42. We'll just say that. I, so, I'm uh, glad you said that because that's my intention to go to 37. So I have still <laughs> a few more years. Okay. I'll, we'll, we'll, We'll keep in touch. I'll be like, oh, there, you're getting closer. You're at 40 right now. Yeah. 35 and a half. Chronologically, I'm 73, going to be 74. But biologically, you're right. I'm around 40. See? And maybe it's the... I, I like that. I, I, I think I got that there. I know I've got to do my... 
Is there, there's a test I bet you can take that says oh, you're there are many, a lot of, there are many, many. Yeah, I should do that. I don't want to do it. I, I need a couple months of, of this now practicing the, what I've learned in this book, but you've made a lot of um, big changes in, it seems like big, and, and even that change, this is what, what made me think of it, is to say, instead of seeing 60 patients, I want to see 10. I don't think that's a decision that everybody was making at the time. Like that was a... No. No, that was no. a swim upstream decision. So, oh, yeah. so tell me about so tell me about these decisions that you've made. How do you make them? How do you make decisions like that 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 aren't what everybody else is doing? It's reflection. You know, you ask yourself, "Am I happy? Do I am I getting what I want out of this activity? Why am I doing this?" So, I got into the habit of asking four questions: Who am I? Am I the changing mind or am I the changing body or am I the consciousness in which this is all happening? Am I the spirit? That was the first question. Second question is, what do I really want from my life? Third question was, what is my purpose in doing what I do? And the fourth question is, what am I grateful for? That's it. And I started with those four questions. The rest, then they evolved into stories, basically. Yeah. You live the questions and they become stories. <laughs> and then you can and then you can tell them. And you move into the stories. Which also and and I want to be I mean I could I could I could sit with you all day. I'm sure you can you can feel that. I'm sure everybody feels that way. Um but I would imagine in some of these decisions and and I mean you can, I, you can read about them too. You have had your naysayers, when you are being you, when you are, when you are answering those four questions time and time again and stepping into and fully living the answers that come from those questions, there are people who aren't going to agree with you. There are people who are going to, and, and this isn't, I mean, we all experience that on, on smaller levels. They feel big to us, but you've experienced this on big levels. So what, what do you say? Can you tell me about some of those uh, those naysayer moments and, and what you do with them? Oh, yeah. I mean, despite all my, my, what should I say? Despite all my training from my parents and my environment, uh, when I had naysayers and big time critics, when I started my career in what we now call integrative medicine, I had huge naysayers, attacks, even by the medical establishment. And some of that still occurs, by the way. It's not that it has gone away. So initially, I felt offended and upset. And uh, then I remembered what my mother said. She said, your critics could be your best friends. And um, without them, you won't be successful. If you don't have any critics, please go out and find some. <laughs> this is what my mother used to say to me. I like this woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you find, and you know, then later I read uh, books by Carlos Castaneda. I don't know if you're familiar. And he talks about petty tyrants. He calls um, critics petty tyrants. So he says there are three kinds of petty tyrants. The teensy-weensy ones, the mediums, and the whoppers. He says teensy-weensy ones you can ignore. The medium you can, once in a while, um, respond to but the whoppers you should make them your allies so how do you how do you because i don't imagine that you spend too much energy trying to transform whoppers whoppers or whoppers whoppers like the hamburger the like the hamburger that's what i thought <laughs> but then i said it and i'm like i think that's a hamburger okay so how do you turn but like what what how how do you gotten to the stage now that it doesn't matter? Yeah. But in the past, I would engage with them, and sometimes in the beginning, with a lot of contentious debate. You can find them online. A lot of contentious <laughs> debate. Google Google Deepak Chopra and Whoppers and and see what comes up. Or Google my debate with the number one uh, militant atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins, and you can see. Okay. But I later changed that. I became more respectful. I became um, more wanting to know their point of view. Where are they coming from? Is there something that I can learn from them? So that actually changed me within. But now 
it doesn't matter right now. You know, it really doesn't matter. I think there are enough people who know that, you know, what I was saying about mind, body, consciousness, meditation, yoga, breathing, personal relationships, that it now seems obvious. At that time, it didn't. Somebody said that, some, I remember at a medical conference, some doctor said, there's no mind-body connection. I said, uh, well, why don't you wiggle your toes? Please wiggle your toes for me. And he wiggled his toes. I said, you started with a thought, and now your toes are wiggling. That's the mind-body connection. Oh, poor guy. Poor guy. I'm just picturing. But I do, what I, what I heard in that, response what you just said goes back to to an earlier point you made when it comes to those naysayers especially the whoppers if you can allow space for this it gives you an opportunity for love which it comes back to love and you said like it gave what i can understand them better maybe there's something i can learn about and now that's all that's all love those are different expressions of of love and and what a gift to you know when those critics do come to to use that as an opportunity to exercise your your love muscle if you will um all right so so let me i know that uh uh total meditation september 22nd is its official date of birth into the world it's the same day as my daughter's birthday so that's oh, why I, I, I felt like for me that's your, your no it's a good sign it is oh she's it's a good it's a good thing that it's a good thing um tell me what is different about total meditation versus meditation i know that that title was intentional and now reading it that 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 intentionality was confirmed but for those who haven't had a chance yet to read it i think the total meditation is how do you stay in a place where you're never in the fight flight freeze response or the reactive response Mm -hmm. where you can stay centered harness your intuition creativity vision and transcendence at any moment that you need to without having to sit down and meditate for 20 minutes, which is also a good idea. Yeah. But you, you can be in that mode anytime. I use the word meditation mode in the book many times. So you can be in that mode. It's like changing your radio station, you know? The, I don't like the song. Why don't I listen to this? Song? Yeah. And that, and that checking, I, I, that's what I loved about this is I've always thought of it uh, like meditation as I wake up and I meditate for 10 minutes, check. And, and it just felt like um, it's kind of against what it's all about to have it be a, to have it's it. It's a very, very Western idea. Check <laughs> meditation, check the gym, check my child, check, <laughs> check my email. What a way to live. Like that's not, that's not, and actually I had. Check this. Yeah, check, check. That's what they, today I will say we were making a to-do list, my sort of things we had to do and there was something that he did last night he hung a mirror in the bathroom I wrote it on the list even though he'd already done it just so I could cross it up so meditation is about spontaneity spontaneous <laughs> creativity that's it we, we might need to we might need to have more discussions about that but actually I have a story for you because as I was reading this book there was this moment um several years ago with my son he was about four years old uh, and I was driving him to preschool. And at the time I was trying to figure out how to be, how to feel more balanced, how to be more centered, how to be more present. I Googled everything. I looked at Oprah. She had a, she was recommending a gratitude journal, write down the thing. So I wrote down the five things I was grateful for, but it was like, check, 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 check. And it wasn't, there wasn't any. And so I was driving my son to preschool and he had just learned about the color turquoise and he was very excited about the color turquoise as as a four-year-old boy would be. And we were driving and he was yelling, Mama, look at that, look at that car, it's turquoise. And look at that gate, it's turquoise. And look at that sign, it's turquoise. And, and then he said, look at the sky, Mama, over there, it's turquoise. And then he paused, he was in the backseat. And he said, what a beautiful turquoise world this is. And, and I remember that moment and, and it made, it all came together in, in reading this book and because I envied him. Because in that moment, he was so 
grateful. He was so present and it had nothing to do with a checklist at the end of the night. It was, it was just being there and seeing the color of turquoise. And, and that's what I, I think what is happening in this book and you've achieved it. And for anyone who gets it is that being able to live in that, that turquoise place. Right. And I think that's what we're all hoping to do. And, and I wish I could be four years old again, because I think they're better at doing it than I am. But I really appreciated this guide um, to be able to get to that place. So Thank you. Well, that's, that's a beautiful story. Your son is enlightened already. He's in total meditation. But that story is total meditation. The highest intelligence is that being. Second is feeling. Third is reflecting. And fourth is doing. And this society is only focused on doing. But your time starts from being. It was um, being. I think we could all use more being. Well, Deepak Chopra. Um, before we conclude, where else can we find you? If this, for whatever reason, is the first time someone is hearing about you, where should where can we find you? Well, if you're feeling a little lonely, then check out www.neveralone.love and engage with Peewee. She's a little chat bot, chat bot and she will become your best friend and she can diagnose or immediately know if you're feeling your mood and tell you what you can do. So we have a global campaign now for mental hygiene, suicide prevention at neverloan.love. All my meditations are found on YouTube. They're free of charge, the Chopra Well. And also we have a new app, Chopra, and thousands of meditations. If you go there, even personalized meditations, Chopra is the app. Okay. Uh well, thank you. What, what an honor. And I am, um, I am deeply touched by this conversation and grateful for all of your stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kendra. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at KindraHall.com or on Instagram at KindraHall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time.